Good morning. My name is Janice. It is so good to be with you on a Mother's Day. Um, just to get started, I want to give you a little, a little parenting story to introduce what I believe God has for us today. Uh, I got the opportunity to go see my mama up in Ohio this week. Uh, but she's 85 and uh, lives on the home place, the home property. And uh, anyway, up there on that farm, there is a um, a small pond. My father built a dam and dammed up the creek, and we have a small pond there that was just a wonderful place over the years when Joe and I would you know, arrive from Oklahoma with all the children, and when they were small, he would go out and fish, and it was his place to just kind of get away from the world. And uh, one particular year, it was quite a few years ago, uh, our middle daughter was about three, about three years old, and she wanted to go fishing with him which meant he wasn't going to do a lot of fishing. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, he dutifully set her up with all of her stuff and took her down there and was trying to teach her. Now, you're going to learn through the story. I know nothing about fishing, so bear with me. But he took her down there, and he's trying to teach her how to cast, and she's releasing at the wrong time. And every time she'd try to throw, the little bobber would end up right at the edge of the boat. You know what I mean? And he's fishing. He caught a couple small things, and, and uh, she's still trying to cast. And then all of a sudden, this little bobber right next to the boat sinks. And he helped her reel in what he tells me is, you know, a hand-sized crappie. And she was so excited about this fish because it was like four times bigger than anything he had caught, Right? Now, she's only three, but, you know, elation hits everyone. And so she is celebrating this little, you know, I got a big fish. I got a big fish, Papa. Did you see my big fish? And it was bigger than yours, and it was a lot bigger than yours. Don't you think it was bigger? And she just went on and on and on, and celebration turned into gloating. And, you know, and at this point, you know, in a child's life, you know, it's okay. parents can handle that. But, you know, the kids on the bus won't, so you try to teach them. So he reached down. They were walking back up, and she's still yammering on about this, and he just popped her in the mouth a little bit. I said, Julia, that's enough. I didn't mean to tell you who it was. One of my children. Anyway, <laughs> one of my children named Julia. I got permission. It's all right. Anyway, and uh, I, he, didn't, he didn't smack her hard. Don't, don't freak out. She didn't even cry. But she did get quiet. And she's walking beside him. And then all of a sudden, she says, she's been thinking, and she says, you smack on my face. <laughs> You're not my favorite person right now. And we have said that for 30-some years. We have said that line in our house, right? You smack in my face, and you are not my favorite person right now. And it got me thinking about the things that happen in our lives. And I, my question to you this morning is, when has God not been your favorite person? Is there a time in your life, and maybe it's right now, when right now you know God, He is your God, He is your Father, but sometimes, based on the situation at hand, He is just not your favorite person right now. That's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning, because I think that is the crux of where we waver in our faith, right? We see people, maybe it's not you, but we see people who waver in their faith when something is happening in our lives that seems too far out of God's character, of who we know him to be. We expected more from him. We expected better from him. We expected Jehovah Jireh to provide, and, he, and we don't feel provision, and we don't feel protected from harm. We expected him to step in, and frankly, he seems late, we're struggling to reconcile rea the reality we have with a God who loves because, and here's the problem, because we're personifying God. We're thinking, if I were God, I would treat me better than that. 
right? If I was in charge, I would treat me better than that. I don't understand why these things are happening, right? And so you hear the classic question, why do bad things happen to good people? But that, that, that reveals a theology in our life that I think we need to consider because if you are the kind of person who feels that, that injustice very strongly, and I shouldn't say that kind of a person, I think we've all felt that. It's like, why do bad things happen to good people? The reverse must also be true. Then why do good things happen to bad people? And yet we see that all the time, don't we? We see that all the time. We see people thriving in their sin and, or in, and maybe just not following God, and they're getting along in a jolly good fashion. And we're like, what in the world is going on? And, and yet I think our brains reason that out. We're like, oh, they, you know, they, they cheat on their taxes. That's how they get ahead. You know, they're cheating the system. If I just have too much integrity, that's the problem, right? If I lived by their code of ethics, I would be getting along fine. But, but you know, so we kind of reason away the prosperity of the wicked, as David would call it. But my thought is this. If we're going to challenge God with the injustice that we feel when we get bad news, we should also consider challenging the injustice of God delivering great things to people that we, frankly, don't think deserve it. You know, if you spend any time in Psalms, David talks about this a lot. He talks about the prosperity of the wicked a lot. He's like, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why are they getting along so well? You know, we're just struggling with that whole thing, and we're reminded not to envy uh, when the wicked prosper. Folks, the good and the bad, the pleasant rain that falls on the just and the unjust, the storms that assail the just and the unjust are collateral damage. They're collateral damage. It is the evidence of living in a fallen world that will face justice one day. We are living in a world where evil has sway right now. Now, God is a God of justice, never you fear, but God is a patient God. Patience is honestly part of his character. It is one we would do well to imitate. Patience is, is that part of him that waits to deliver justice so that one more person might turn toward him. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone come to repentance. And yet, and yet there are days when God's timetable and his patience in changing our situation makes him not our favorite person for a while. Now, I love the way the Bible describes our relationship to God in a variety of ways and a, different, and a variety of different analogies because they tell us different things about how God relates to us, right? We learn in Scripture that we are like the clay to a potter. We learn that we are like sheep to a shepherd. We learn that we are a bride to a bridegroom, and we are a child to a parent. You will hear God describe our relationship in all of these ways, and look at the things we learn as we consider those. As the clay, we see God's creative genius. We see ourselves totally in God's hands. He shapes and molds and takes joy in us as his creation. He's a master creator who designed us and set us up on a shelf of his choosing, unique and unlike any other. As a sheep, we see God's protective qualities, his provision, 
right? He leads us to safe pastures. He puts us in the fold away from danger. He seeks the one who gets lost and drifts away from the fold. He heals. As the bride, we see God's love for us, his promises, his covenant to us and us alone, his devotion, and frankly, his jealousy when we take his relationship lightly, when we're unfaithful to his covenant. And as a child, we see God's unfailing and unconditional love even when we are unruly and downright disobedient. When we are brats, he still loves. When we misbehave, he corrects. And when we're crying and in fear, he puts us under his wings because he is a God of comfort. Psalm 91, 4 through 5, probably the only place in the Bible where you will hear God even, you know, describing himself in any sort of chicken-like way, right, or bird. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. So, on this Mother's Day, let's consider our childlike response to God as a parent when he might not be our favorite person. Because when we are misbehaving, we know that a good, caring, and attentive parent will step in to correct behavior, right? And allow consequences. And a good parent will also recognize when there is not time to reason this thing out. I know there are, are parenting thoughts and schools of thought and strategies that sway from one to the other about having a big, long discussion with your toddler and convincing them that that's wrong. But there are times when you don't have time for that, right? When reason is not going to work. There is a moment when you don't have time for a discussion. If your child is about to get hit by a bus that's coming rolling down the road, you don't have time to discuss what, what the bus is going to do. You grab them by the arm and you pull them out of harm's way, even if it wrenches their arm and makes them squeal a little bit, right? There are times when we have to be able to do that as a parent. As a parent, we will permit pain to a child to escape a worse outcome. We subject our children to painful medical procedures when necessary, to avert a, a worse diagnosis or a worse uh, condition. It is not fun, but it is the role and the responsibility of a parent to handle and absorb the frustration of a child and not give in to their pleas. A parent must stand their ground against the whining, the complaining, and the outright screaming. You know why? Because a parent can see the big picture. The parent can see what's going on and knows what to do, right? A parent must be patient and long-suffering with the child's complaints because we dare not give in just to have them be quiet or satisfied or happy with us. A parent has to be able to handle a child's lack of understanding even when they blame us for things. This is what God is so good at. Don't you be afraid to let God see your frustration or you're whining, or you're crying, or anything that you don't understand because he can handle it. We are not going to throw a temper tantrum on that aisle at Walmart that's going to change God's mind because he knows what we need best. God is good at that. And yet, as children of God, in an effort to understand God and to put him in a user-friendly box, we sometimes, we shy away from him. 
instead of drawing close. When we don't fully understand, we sometimes shy away from him or we plead for more information. I'm going to use a story from the Old Testament this morning. It took me a while to get there, but let's go to 1 Kings 22. That's where we're going to be working this morning. If you have a Bible, if you don't, uh, you can see it behind you or you can look it up on your phones. This is a story that um, I've always enjoyed and I just felt like it was what God was giving us for today. I'm going to skip down through a few of the verses, but you'll get the gist of the story and I'll kind of teach it as we go. Are you ready? For three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. Now, the time period that we're talking about here is after King Solomon and the United Kingdom. Now we have a divided kingdom, Israel and Judah. They are all Jews. They are all Hebrews. But um, they have two different kingdoms, and they're still connected. They have a shared heritage. So Jehoshaphat is a very godly king. He is the king over Judah. That includes Jerusalem. And you have the king of Israel, which is only called that in this passage. But we happen to know that he is Ahab, one of the most wicked kings that Israel would ever have. He was married to Jezebel, and and, uh, he's actually a rather funny character in Scripture, what we have left of him. But, uh, But he was an evil man. He was not following God in any way. But the two of these kings have children that have married. So there is a political marital alliance, a politically arranged perhaps marriage between Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, and Joram, who is the uh, son of Jehoshaphat. Okay? So they have connections. And apparently they get together every now and then for coffee or reunions. I don't really know. Okay? So he says, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to sea the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and yet we are doing nothing to take it from the king of Aram. They want to recapture some taken land. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, your people as my people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said, first seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets. He had about 400 of them, 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they said. The Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat smells a rat. Something about the collective, unified voice of 400 prophets, or maybe the character of these prophets, I don't really know. But Jehoshaphat is like, Do you not have one Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? He knows that King Ahab is not a godly man, and he's not counting on these prophets to be any good. For all he knows, these are Baal prophets. I don't really know. But he's saying, is there not a prophet of the Lord? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, and this this just amuses me to no end, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. And the, king's, uh, uh, the king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. And dressed in their royal robes, the kings of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting by their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance at the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah and Kenna had made iron horns, and they declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. 
I find this amusing. These prophets are so convinced of what they're doing that now they're making like little arts and craft projects to kind of, you know, symbolize how, how good this is going to go. And they're, they're bringing those things. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead. Be victorious. The Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, look, the other, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah replied, as surely as the Lord lives, I can only tell him what the Lord tells me. So when he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Now, based on that, I'm assuming that he's going to lay out the truth. And this is what he says. Attack and be victorious, he said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. And the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but truth in the name of the Lord? It appears that whatever he said was mocking. I don't know the tone of how he said that. I don't know it, the sarcasm that might have been dripping from that. But King Ahab, was. it was clear to him that Micaiah was not being honest in this report that he was giving. And so he's like, come on, I've told you, you have to tell me the truth. So now he does. Micaiah answers, I saw all Israel on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you? He never prophesies anything good about me, only bad. Then on down, after a little bit more of the prophecy, the king of Israel ordered, take Micaiah back, send him to Amnon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison. Give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. And he added, mark my words, all you people. And by the way, King Ahab does die in this battle because the very next verse says, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. Here's the deal. We all love our mamas and we all need counsel in life. But there is going to be a day, and there are most days, when you're going to need more than your mama. If you had a good one, if you had a mama that didn't do as good as you wanted her to be, whatever it is, you're going to need more counsel than that. So when we are trying to figure out what God is allowing in our lives or what he is asking us to do, number one, you need to seek counsel from people who are further down the road you want to go. You need to seek counsel from people who are further down the road you want to go. You get to choose the prophets that you will listen to, the prophets in your life, because counsel is sorted through their life view, through their faith in God and their relationships. That is the litmus test. Discipleship matters. We don't just come to church and listen a little bit and go home and do our individual things, right? We are called to make disciples. That means there should be people that you are pouring into because of where you have been that are coming along in their faith because of you. And we need people ahead of us who are further down the road than we are that is, are giving counsel to us so that we can get further along the way. We need to be looking for people who are older than us um, in years. We need to be looking for people who might just be older than us in the faith, people who are more mature, people who've maybe been through a similar battle, something like that who can help us go in that direction. Those are the kind of people that we need. 
right? Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When our children were small, they're all grown now, but when they were small, we knew they were going to be preacher's kids, and it was like, oh, this is going to be a, a, a unique situation, and honestly, the stats on preacher's kids were not good, and it was like we knew they were going to need more than us, and so we encouraged them, find godly people in the church to have coffee with to talk to about things that you don't want to talk to us about. We weren't like giving away our parenting, but we were inviting godly counsel into their life. And we trusted the people that they ended up choosing to be a part of, and we encouraged that. We weren't trying to get them to be a silo in this whole situation, right? Mamas don't have to do it all. We can be the church for each other. Number two, when we're trying to figure out what God is allowing in our lives, and what he's asking us to do, it is dangerous to surround yourself with folks who say what we want to hear. It is dangerous to surround ourselves with folks who only say what we want to hear. In a, another decade, I would have called these yes men. You put people on your team who only tell you what you want to hear. You only hire people to tell you what you want to hear. There's, there's other terms for that in today's colloquial language. You, we don't, that's not where you get your counsel. People who benefit from your good favor are not going to necessarily give you good counsel. If they serve at your mercy, they're not necessarily going to give you good counsel. And the scripture talks about it. We will find people who tell us what our itching ears want to hear. I can do that. I know where to go to have somebody tell me what I want to hear. I know where to go to get the sympathy I want. But I need people in my life who will ask me hard questions. I need people in my life who will say, I don't know if you did that right. I think you might want to rethink what you're doing. Or I think you might be thinking about that incorrectly. You need to be careful about that. See, people with power, position, and sometimes, let's be, let's be real, big personalities have to watch out for this because the people around them benefit from their power and their position and their big personality. And so nobody wants to buck them. Nobody wants to say the wrong thing. And sometimes we're tempted to tell people what they want to hear because we've watched them cut folks off who disagreed with them, right? We've watched them get rid of people like, you know, king of Israel shoves him in the, puts him in prison if he tells him the truth, right? We, and social media has taught this as well, right? You've seen people post, well, and let's, everybody buckle up. We have another election cycle coming. Are you ready? Buckle up. And you'll see people going, if you think any differently about this, just unfriend me right now. Do you, who wants to live in that echo chamber? You only want to hear what you want to hear. You only want what reinforces you. It's okay to, to have people have a differing view, and we particularly need godly people who are able to approach us. Do you have someone who can, without fear of losing the relationship with you, warn you of danger? Is there anyone in your life who can say, I, you know, where you been, man? I haven't seen you. I feel like, it seems like you're slipping. Maybe you're not, but maybe what are you doing? Do you have anybody who will speak truth to you? Do you have someone who's willing to approach you and challenge your thought process, your activities, your plans, your recreation? 
Do you have anyone to help you hear from God? To help interpret his will with you? We don't just have one lone prophet running around doing all those things. We have the church, and we are here for each other. Listen, it's not hard to assemble a bunch of agreeable people. Even the single evil king is smart enough to know that. And as much as he doesn't want to hear bad information, he's annoyed with the way they patronize him. And we should be too. If you have people in your life who do nothing but patronize you and try to make you feel good about yourself, so you feel good right here. I mean, that's, that's not what you need. That's not what any of us need. We need something more than that. I've been reading a little bit in the book of Proverbs, and the Proverbs are a collection of sayings written by a parent, a father, to his son, a lot of, of wise sayings and a lot of warnings. And one of them is, son, don't hang around with people who aren't pointed toward God. Toward God. They will lead you down a path. And if you go with them long enough, you will succumb. You will become like those people. Be careful where you get counsel. Proverbs 19, 20, and 21, listen to my counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And number three, when we're trying to figure out what God is allowing in our lives and what he's asking us to do, we dare not be afraid of hard conversations. Micaiah was not afraid of a hard conversation. As a matter of fact, the, the reality that the kings totally dis, uh, disregarded his advice is not on Micaiah. He did his job. He reported and delivered the message that God gave him. He was willing to be the voice of God to bring them back from the brink. See, in history, when, when um, nations were getting close to battle, goodness, even common times, when they're getting close to battle, when there's a lot of saber rattling, we call that brinkmanship, when they're getting close to the brink. And Micaiah is in a position to bring them back from the brink of a bad battle, a not well thought out uh, encounter that God was not leading them into. And in a church community, we are called upon, we are nudged, we are instructed to have hard conversations with people who are going toward the brink. To, to bring them back, to bring them back in restoration. We are called as a community of faith to restore people who are drifting in their faith. We aren't just called to be tolerant and ignore decline because we don't want anybody to feel bad. Jonah spent, Jonah spent three nights in a fish for being unwilling to have a hard conversation with an entire nation. Ezekiel says this, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Those are heavy words in terms of what it means for us to be community and to be there for each other instead of just willy-nilly, I don't want to get in nobody's business kind of thing. I love the way Matthew Henry's commentary puts it, ancient commentary. The greatest kindness we can do to one that is going in a dangerous way is to tell him of his danger. That's a kindness. So, in parenting, mothering or fathering, in discipling, correction is a gift. Allowing a pain that you can't and don't have time to, understand, to explain to a child, that is a gift, right? Even when it doesn't feel good. 
And as a good parent, God not only corrects, he comforts. He gets our limited understanding. He can handle our fear, our anger, our despair. And as parents, we can comfort children even when we can't fully explain what's going on. We can hold them. We can sing to them. We can soothe them. And, you know, I, I know that there's a thing out there called self-soothing. I'm not sure God is a God of self-soothing. I don't think he shoves us in a crib and lets us cry it out. I think he's there for us. I think he's ready to hear whatever pain we're dealing with. And to remind us that we are not forgotten. See, when it feels like God is letting stuff happen in our life, we, we, we tend to believe, because the enemy wants us to believe, that God's given up on us. That somebody else is more important, that he's taken care of over there, and that he's forgotten about us. He's neglecting us. We're not, we didn't earn his good favor in some way. And yet, throughout history, God has heard the cries of the oppressed, even when they didn't know it. The Hebrews... The brokenhearted, infertile women, the orphan, the widow, he sees and has stepped in. Sometimes so late in the game that we struggle to believe. As a matter of fact, God often seems late. For Rachel, when her sister had had multiple children and she didn't, she finally does, but it felt late. Sarai and Elizabeth, when they're well past days of childbearing and they have children, it felt late. Jesus himself shows up four days late when his best buddy is dying. I don't know if he's the best buddy, but he was a good buddy. Lazarus is dying. He shows up four days late. He misses the entire funeral. And that didn't feel good to anyone, right? None of these situations or delays were tests, and they were not rejection from God. They are not examples of a tardy or neglectful God. There was always a bigger story. Always a bigger story. Sometimes people saw it, and sometimes they didn't get to see it. You know, when we talk about people, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Just go read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is about the heroes of the faith, and it just accounts uh, person after person and the hardships that they went through. Here's just a little bit of what it says. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients, the heroes, were commended for. Verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. And then down in verse 38, they went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. What a way to live. To live in a way that the world would not be worthy of us. See, here are people who never got a good earthly explanation of their trials. Remember the God character of patience? God didn't jump in to solve every hardship uh, for them on this side of glory. See, in our idea of good parenting, for me, sometimes the sole strategy was, how can we stop the crying, right? Sometimes that's the sole strategy in my parenting uh, years ago, was how do we get the crying to stop? I'm convinced that baby cries are so annoying, God made them that way so that we wouldn't forget them. 
right? We wouldn't run off and leave them, although I did do that a couple times when my children were older, but I didn't mean to. I'm just saying sometimes it's so annoying, and, and it's there to get our attention because loud noises, right, for me, loud noises mess with me. They have since I was small. My father had power tools, and I remember jumping when he would pull them out, you know, and he would laugh about that because I would jump every time he'd turn on a, a, a drill or a saw or something. And if you've ever had the joy of coming into this church with, and use the code on someday when we're not here, and you've, somebody's already doubling over, and you've messed it up, and the siren alarms go off, oh, I can't even think straight. When that has happened to me, I cannot, I can't think straight. I would, I would give you every bit of my personal information to just make it stop. Just make it stop. I cannot, right? It's just so much racket in my head, right? What I want you to know is God is bigger than the biggest noises you have in your life right now. He is bigger than whatever it is that is distracting you in that big noise right now. What is it that's making so much noise in your head this morning that you are in jeopardy of making poor choices? You put enough noise in my head and I would probably give you all of my private information, which I should not do. That would be a poor choice. Now, maybe you're not running out to take a hit of heroin, but you know that you're beginning to slip into unhealthy patterns because you're trying to cope with the noise that's going on in your head right now. Is there a circumstance in your life that is so loud right now that your reasoning power is scrambled? What's making so much noise in your life right now that you find yourself, and here's the problem, shying away from God instead of drawing to him? God has promised a lot of things in this world, but he never promised that we would totally understand our hardships. But he does offer comfort. He does remind us of his love and care. And here's the great part. He often does that through other people. Through other people. So this morning as we close, we're going to have an opportunity to help each other hear from God. His comfort, his direction, and his peace. What is it that's making so much noise in your life that you find yourself retreating into solitude? Folks, solitude is a deep hole. It is just such a deep hole. It's dark. And when you get into that spot, you don't make great decisions. Have you watched any movies like that Tom Hanks movie where he got stranded on an island? You start talking to volleyballs and naming them Wilson or something. You know what I mean? You don't make great decisions when you are alone and you have no community around you at all. Everything loses perspective, and you don't have that, okay? We don't want to go into solitude. We begin to believe the worst about everything. Now, I get it. One of the reasons we shy away from people as well as God is because sometimes when we're in crisis, people say dumb stuff, don't they? People have said the worst stuff when you're grieving and your grandma died and things are hard or whatever, and they said something that felt unkind and you took it wrong. And you know what? Most of us didn't get to go to school to get a master's in what to say to people in grief. We're just winging it. And sometimes we're winging it out of love. And we're going to do the best we can. We're not going to get it right all the time. But you know what else? We're not going to get it wrong all the time either. 
So don't quit swinging. Those of you who back away from helping other people or, or comforting because you don't think you'll say the right thing, you know what? Ask God to give you something and, and maybe you don't need to say anything, but maybe he's inviting you to be present in some form or to give them something, to deliver some way to support and be a part of community. We can do that. People don't always get it wrong. Listen, Mary and Martha were unbelievably disappointed, perhaps angry when Jesus did not show up. Okay? He didn't even show up at the funeral. Again, four days late. But his tardiness was not an accurate reflection of his love. That wasn't a correct way to interpret his actions. I'm not sure they ever totally understood, although bringing Lazarus back to life, you know, took the sting out of it a little bit, I'm sure. Here's what I notice about people in crisis. It seems to me that in the years that we've been in ministry, when people are in deep crisis, if they, if they love a person, it's just like whoever that person is can say no wrong. They can do something, not do something, and it was just the right amount. If they were already irritated with a family member for one reason or another, they can't do anything right. <laughs> they did too much, they did too little, they said the wrong thing, whatever. Sometimes we throw all of that into it. Let's just, even if we're in crisis, let's give a little grace to the people around us. We're not gonna do it right all the time. We're not gonna do it wrong all the time either. We're going to still be there for each other. Here's what I know. Even when we don't understand what's going on, God wants to comfort us. So on this happy little day when we're supposed to be celebrating the best mamas that we aren't and maybe never had, how about we draw close to God instead? Let's come to our feet as we go into this last song. If you're not from the vineyard, here's how we like to end our services. We like to give an opportunity for people to receive ministry and be prayed for. So during the last song, we have people up here who've been trained to pray for you. They are on our prayer team. And anytime during that song, you can make your way up and stand in front of them. And if you've got words to say, you can tell them what you want prayer for. If you don't, they'll pray for you anyway. And uh, this is an opportunity for us to maybe reach out and get some help with whatever has been so loud in uh, whatever that noise is that's been in our life this week. Let's pray before we do that. God, I thank you for who you are to us. I thank you for the example of parenting that, that you give us. And I thank you that you are a better parent than we could ever hope to be. Father, this morning I know that there are some loud things going on and there are some of us that are struggling to make sense and some of us are, uh, are pulling away because um, we don't know if we can trust a God that didn't treat us the way we wanted to be treated. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive comfort from you today. God, would you reach in and give us a perfect peace? Not that, we're not asking that you make everything perfect in our lives. We know that we live in a sinful world, but would you give us peace? in our circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.